Good morning. My name is Conrad Morse, and I serve on the Elder Council here at FBC. Today we'll be reading from God's Word in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during these days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and sat him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, answered him, It is said, You shall love not, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You may be seated. Join me as we, uh, as we pray. God, we thank you for the kindness you have shown us in Christ. We thank you for the opportunity we have in these moments to know you through the truth of your word. Our prayer in this time, God, is that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, that you would make us more like Jesus, even as we take the time to know you through your word, and we're grateful for the joy it is to know you through your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Working our way through the book of Luke, and this morning we're in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, the temptation of Jesus uh, in the wilderness. There's a um, thing pilots know about. So there's two ways you can fly an airplane. Probably a number of ways you can fly an airplane. Uh, there's two designations of how you can fly an airplane. One is IFR and one is VFR. IFR is instrument flight rules. VFR is visual flight rules, and it goes like this. If you're going to fly under VFR, visual flight rules, that means you can see well enough to navigate your, air, uh, your aircraft with your eyes. You can look out the window and say, ground's down there, sky's up there, going to keep the aircraft up in the air. Good call can see other aircraft, you can, uh, and, the, and the conditions of the weather have to be such for you to be able to fly under a VFR, visual flight rules. Instrument flight rules are when you're flying in weather conditions uh, that are, uh, your eyes are not going to do you any good, like if you're flying at night or if you are flying through weather that prevents you from seeing uh, where you're going. And so what you will do is you'll navigate your aircraft based on the instruments 
You will look at your instrument panel and determine your altitude, your heading, your, uh, whether you are ascending or descending, whether you are flying level, whether you are turning or not turning. You have to look at your instruments to determine how your aircraft is navigating its way uh, through uh, the sky. And if you are a, a pilot who is uh, instrument flight rated, you have been taught this one thing that is always true. Trust your instruments. Trust your instruments. Now, why would you have to tell a pilot to trust his instruments? Why wouldn't he trust his in instruments? Because of a physical thing that happens, and it's called spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation is where your body tells you that which is not true. So they have done studies to determine if somebody's blindfolded and they are rolled in a cockpit, when it stops rolling, they will think they still are. Their, their equilibrium will tell them they're still rolling. They've even studied your eyes, that when someone is rolling and it stops rolling and they look out and they think they see stars, their eyes will convince them they're still turning. And what they're told is, your eyes are lying to you. Your equilibrium is lying to you. What is not lying to you? Your instruments. I, is there an echo? It, what's that? Okay. I just make it. I didn't know if I was having spatial disorientation. In this. <laughs> yeah, so often I'm, I, this is most of my life. Is this voice out loud or is it just in my head? I, I, yeah, so. <laughs> okay, we're not going to rule it. It could just be an echo. Okay. So, uh, so what you do is you, you always trust your instruments. You don't trust what your, what your body is telling you. That's what pilots are taught. Always trust your instruments. When we look at the temptation of Jesus, this is what we're going to discover. He's saying you got to trust your instruments. You're going to be getting lots of different kinds of inputs, and many of them aren't going to be true. When I hunger... God must be holding out on me because God wouldn't want me hungry. When I am short on financial resources, God must be holding out on me because God does not want me to be broke. When I am short on power and control and influence in my life, God must be holding out on me because God wants me to have the ability to have control and influence in my life. So the input is hunger. And what Jesus is going to show us, trust your instruments. You're experiencing in that moment spatial disorientation, and the temptation is, what do I believe in this moment? My instruments, or do I believe my hunger? So let's take a look at what Jesus was experiencing in Luke chapter 4, and then we will draw out from that how it should also show up in our own life. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and he, then shortly after he got baptized, and he was led out into the wilderness... He was out there for 40 days, and he didn't eat during that time. And at the end of that time, he was hungry. That's really, really important. You seem like uh, Captain Obvious was writing the scripture there for a moment. But no, this is really, really important. And Luke includes this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to remind us Jesus is fully God and fully man, which means he was hungry. How hungry was Jesus? 40 days hungry. Jesus had not eaten for 40 days, and he was as hungry as a person would be who hadn't eaten for 40 days. You have no idea what that's like, and neither do I, because I only know what it's like to be hungry for 40 minutes. And then I try and fix that problem. 
That, that's got to be addressed. So we have no idea what that level of hunger is like, but Jesus does. It wasn't pretend hunger. It was the hunger you would experience if you hadn't eaten for 40 days. So the devil came up to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. That's what the devil says to him. Is there anything morally wrong with Jesus eating bread? No. Is there anything morally wrong with Jesus doing a miracle? No. Is there anything wrong with Jesus doing a miracle where something becomes bread? No. Jesus makes a bunch of bread later on. Feeds like 5,000 people. So there's nothing wrong. It's what the devil says. If you and God have the relationship you say you do, you should never go hungry. You should... If you and God have the kind of relationship you say you have, son of man, you should never go hungry. Is your relationship with God what you really think it is? Then why are you hungry? And so there are two inputs right here for Jesus. He has his hunger, and he has the word of God, which we're going to look at in a moment. And what the devil is asking him to do is look at his hunger to make an evaluative decision on the status of his relationship with God. That's what he's doing. There's two inputs, and what Jesus responds with from Deuteronomy is, my hunger is a non-factor. It's not a reliable input to inform me about the status of my relationship with God. It's not that I'm not hungry. It just doesn't provide me any meaningful relationship about what's going on in my relationship with God. It is meaningful to inform me about how much food I've eaten, which is none. It doesn't tell me anything about my status with my relationship with God. But that's what the devil is trying to get him to do. So Jesus' response is to look at his instruments. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy, of course, was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Moses and was written shortly before Moses died and the people of Israel crossed the Jordan under the command of Joshua into the promised land. So at this point in their history, the people of Israel had been eating manna as their primary food during the wilderness. And during their time in the wilderness, the people of Israel did nothing but celebrate the joy of being supplied food by God day in and day out. Yeah, so some of you have read it. That's not how it went. They complained a few times. And, and, and uh, Moses was telling them, you don't live by bread alone, but you live by the word of God. Jesus is using his instruments, the word of God. What matters is I have the Father not whether I have food. And what Jesus is going to, to show us through the uh, book of Deuteronomy is, I would rather have hunger and the Father than bread without the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. I would rather be hungry with the Father than to have all the bread I could want and not be with the Father. He isn't saying that if you're full, you don't have the Father. That's not what he's saying. But that was, that's what the devil was offering, and Jesus knew it. You don't, need the, you don't need the Father to give you bread. You can get it on your 
own. And Jesus, I would rather be hungry and have the Father than to eat without him. Think back to Adam, and this is important because the previous chapter, last week, we looked at the genealogy of Christ and the way Luke described that genealogy ends with Adam. Jesus, hungry, says, I would rather have the Father than food. Adam, not hungry. I would rather have food than the Father. See the difference between the two? And this is what was being drawn out of that genealogy. Jesus steps in and does what Adam couldn't do, innocent and full. Jesus, in a broken world, sinless perfection as God, while hungry, says, you know what? I still prefer God to the forbidden fruit. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 is what Jesus is quoting from. Moses tells the people of Israel just before they go into the promised land this, God humbled you and let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know. What does manna mean? What is it? That's literally what What is it? So they spent the rest of their time calling it, go get some what is it. We made a candy bar. We call it a whatchamacallit. It's pretty much the same thing. He said, manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he may make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The idea of collecting manna day in and day out was to teach them to trust God day in and day out. Will God keep his promise today? Because there's no food in the pantry. If there's no manna tomorrow, we're going hungry. That was the point of teaching them. God was teaching them with their hunger to teach them that he is actually better than the bread that their hunger was telling them they needed. We actually discover something pretty incredible in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8 is the problem is actually not hunger. Hunger is easy. When I'm hungry, I seek the Lord. When I'm hungry, I know there's a problem. Look at with me at Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Why would they need to take care? Because they're hungry? No. Verse 12, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up. You will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The warning here is, we think when we're full, everything is good with us and God, and when we're hungry, there's something wrong between us and God. And what Jesus does by drawing us back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and says, says this, the hunger, not hunger, is not the issue. The question is, does God keep his word? And for us, the dangerous time generally is not when we're hungry. The dangerous time is when we're full and satisfied. When everything's hunky-dory, who needs God? That's exactly what happened to the people of Israel. And if we're honest with ourselves, this happens to us. We're to take care when we're full. Don't forget that God is better than a full belly. You don't believe me. Don't forget, God is better than a full belly. I was just telling my son before the service over in the fireside room, I had 
the heart cookie. Anybody have the heart cookie with the icing on it? I could eat 100 of those right now. I mean, I, I told my, my brother, I said, how do I go preach on God as man does not live by bread alone when I w- I'm, I'm ready to sell my soul for a nice cookie? God is better than an iced heart cookie. God is worth trusting even when I'm hungry. The hunger's not an accurate data point. Jesus actually says it this way by drawing our attention back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. God is worth trusting because I'm hungry. He's doing something here. He made me hungry in this moment that I might respond in a, in a particular way. And he's worth trusting because of the hunger, because of the want, because of the where do I get my next meal feeling drives me to my knees. And God is gracious to do such a thing. Look at verse 5 of Luke chapter 4. First temptation was the bread. Luke chapter 4 Verse 5, the devil took Jesus up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I don't know how he did that. Probably he pulled up Facebook and scrolled for him. I have no idea how he did this. He basically took a look at the whole, uh, all the kings of the world. And he said, I'll give you all this authority and their glory. It's been delivered to me and I will give it to whoever I will. If you then will worship me. Was, was the devil making a legitimate offer? Did the devil have the authority to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world? Maybe. I don't know. It doesn't really say. Jesus didn't argue the point. The problem with the devil is if he's talking, he's lying. So it's hard to know. I, I would suggest at best he was exaggerating. It doesn't even matter at some point. The issue is not that kingdoms of the world is a good offer. Jesus understood even if the devil could offer him all the kingdoms of the world and all of the glory therein, it's a lame offer. That's what Jesus understood. We wouldn't understand that. Somebody came to you right now, I will offer you the wealth of the world and everything and the glory that can be obtained in the world. Well, that seems pretty good. That's going to that's gonna be something I'm going to have to work hard on saying no to. Jesus understood it was a lame offer. He was being offered garbage. Jesus responds from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 22 says this. First, let's look at Deuteronomy 6, 13. Did I say 22? You heard me wrong. Deuteronomy 6.13 is what Jesus is referring to. He says this, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people uh, who are around you. Worship the Lord your God alone. Why would they worship God and God alone? Because worship is the response of a grateful heart that has been saved. Worship is the response of a grateful heart that has been saved. Moses says in Deuteronomy 6.22, Moses recounting that great time when they were delivered from Egypt, the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our very eyes. What were some of those things? Frogs, flies, Nile turned to blood, hailstones that crushed everything. Verse 23, he brought us out from there that 
he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our forefathers. Verse 24, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 6, and Jesus is wanting our minds to go back there, is this. Why worship God? Because he saved you. People of Israel, why should they worship God? In order to get saved? No, they already have been. God saved them from slavery out of Egypt, drew them through the Red Sea, walked them through the wilderness, and God has said, I have saved you from slavery, so therefore... Worship God and God alone, the God who has saved you. So worship is a response to God for salvation from slavery. And the people are on their way to the promised land that God has promised them. They're getting ready shortly after Moses is going to die to cross the river and get it. Here's the thing. If the promised land is not good enough, God is not good enough. If God's promise of his promised land to the people of Israel is not good enough for them, was the promised land good enough for them? No. If his covenant promises aren't good enough, then God will not be good enough. So why should I worship him and him alone? And you're thinking, why wouldn't they be satisfied with the promised land? It seemed nice. Let's do it this way. If God saving you from your sins is not enough for you, then God is not enough for you. If you need to be saved from your sins and whatever that is, I don't know what it is. If you need to be saved from your sins and God's not enough for you. Worship is recognizing what God has promised is enough, which means God is enough. And the devil comes up to Jesus and says, You have the Father, but do you know what you don't have? You don't have power and glory. And Jesus says, I have the Father. So do you know what I have enough of? Everything. And to fail to acknowledge that God is enough is to merely worship whatever you put in the blank after I need forgiveness and this. So if you need forgiveness and to have all your bills paid, you are gladly going to do what Israel did, worship God for saving you, and the money that pays your bills. And God does not allow us to worship him and something else. End of story. Read your Bible. He doesn't do it. You worship me, he says, or you don't worship me, but you don't worship me and. And the devil comes to Jesus and says, all you got to do is worship a little bit. You can still hang out with God, just a little bit of Satan worship, and you also get this stuff and God. His response is maybe different than ours. Why would I need anything other than the Father? You can keep your garbage. Why would I need anything other than the Father? How does this work for the people of Israel? This is number 1612. It's not up on your screen because I added it this morning. Moses called out to Dathan and Abiram. I don't know if I'm saying their names right. They're not here. They were the sons of Eliab. They said, we will not go up and meet with you. They were rebelling against Moses. 
Here's what they said. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? How was the promised land described? Land of milk and honey. I like the VeggieTales comment. Land of milk and honey. Sounds sticky. And here we have Dathan describing what as a land of milk and honey? Egypt. The land of slavery. Is it a small thing? You have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. We would rather return to slavery and get the glory of the kingdoms of this world than worship God in this wilderness and only have God. Let's go back to slavery. That's, that's what Jesus was being offered by the devil. Dathan and his followers were not successful with their temptation. Jesus, understanding the Father is enough, said, you can take your trash and go. I don't need the glories of this kingdom. Is God worth trusting even when I'm hungry? Jesus answered, God is worth trusting because I'm hungry. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30, I'm going to read them. It's a familiar passage, and it we'll get to it in a few months or a few years. I'm not sure. A ruler asked him, that is Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus knew he was God. This rich young ruler hadn't figured that out yet. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he, that is the rich young ruler, said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he, that is the rich young ruler, heard that, he was very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said this, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, who can be saved? Jesus said, what is impossible with God? With man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said, look. We've left our homes and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age eternal life to come. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He wants a God that will accept his paltry good behavior if it means he can keep all the stuff he wants. Will you take my notions of pay it forward, God? Will you take my notions of being kind to my neighbor, God? Will you take my notions of self-sacrifice? Uh, if I get to keep all of this stuff, I worship instead of you. And Jesus says, no. That's not how the kingdom works. Why would you want to keep your trash when you have a kingdom? Jesus is a kingdom of bread and of glory. All he's simply trying to ask us to understand through referring back to Deuteronomy is this. 
Not that eating bread is wrong and not that having wealth is wrong. We just need to watch out what we worship and make sure we're not taking the wrong inputs. When I'm hungry, God must be mad at me. And when I'm full, everything must be good between God and I. No, that is determined by looking at the instruments, the word of God. Is God worth trusting when I'm hungry? Yes, he's worth tr trusting because I'm hungry. This last temptation, let's go over to, back over to Luke chapter 14, if you don't mind. And by Luke 14, of course, I mean Luke 4. This last temptation has less to do with appetites or power or enjoying the luxuries of this life. The question in this last temptation is this. What does it mean about my relationship with God when things get really scary? Is God worth trusting when I'm scared? When you dial 911, what's supposed to happen? Somebody's supposed to answer the phone. 911, what's your emergency? I don't know how long to bake a turkey. I don't know what your emergency is. Well, you dial 911, you need somebody to answer, and you need somebody to show up. I, need, I got a problem. I'm going to dial 911. I need somebody. I need a cop. I need an ambulance. I need a fire truck. I need something. I, I need you to send something to me that will fix this problem. If you dial 911 and either they're not there or they send you no hope, they send you no help, then what use to you is 911? There's no use. Why would I call 911? I'm calling you. You're not sending me any help or you are, you are not there. And so you and I are walking through this life, and it turns out, maybe you've noticed, there's a whole bunch of things you have no control over. And every now and then, I need God to show up. And it feels like he's absent. It feels like he's nowhere. It feels like he can't be bothered. Would God put me in situations of fear and danger? And is God worth trusting when it's scary, look at what happens to Jesus. The devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. We don't know where that was. There are certain portions of the temple mount that are two or 300 feet higher than the floor of the valley that it's built upon. So it's probably one of these places where if he were to, to leap, he would um, meet an end. This is what the devil says to him. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And now the devil gets kind of crafty, doesn't he? Finally, he gets his own Bible out. Psalm 91, he will commend his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus, if your relationship with the Father is what you say it is, God wouldn't let you fall to his death, would he? Now, Jesus, here's what the Bible says. And here's who you are. You know what we ought to do? We ought to see if this is true. The Bible says it. I believe it. And what's the next phrase? That's not what the devil said. What does the devil say? The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Ah, that's a nice way. That's not a Bible verse, by the way. But Bible says it. I believe it. So let's test it. Let's see. Let's see if this thing is really going to work out, Jesus. So you just take a little leap. Count to three, and we'll see if any angels catch you. Now, this seems like a pious act of faith. If Jesus were willing to jump off of the pinnacle of the temple, he must really believe that God would save him. No, this is an arrogant, would be an arrogant expression of doubt. 
I don't think God is who he says he is, and I'm going to paint him in the corner and see it and force him to act the way I think he should act. And so Jesus says, no, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. And he quotes again from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The devil is trying to get him to think there must be something wrong with God if he won't show up the way his Bible says he is going to show up. And Jesus says, I don't need to test God. God always shows up the way he says he is going to show up. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to look there. Deuteronomy 6, 16. Moses said this, this to the people of Israel. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But you know that's not the end of the verse. Jesus didn't quote the rest of it. Is it up there? You shall not put him to the test as you tested him at Massah or Massah. I don't know how you say it. I wasn't there. How did they test him at Massah? I'm going to say it six different ways. Exodus 17, verses 1 and 2. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. It's unfortunate that it's called that, but anyway. They moved on by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Here's how they did their theological math. Here's the math. Are you ready? We love math. God saved us out of Egypt. He gave us the Passover. We marched through the Red Sea, and now we are in the desert, and he has promised to take us to the promised land. In order to get through a desert, you need water. Therefore, since God saves and is taking us to the promised land, God must give us water in the desert. Do you see how the math works? Does it make sense? Is it reasonable? Yes. Is it true? No. Jesus is saying in Deuteronomy 6, God can handle the water situation any way he sees fit. What he wanted the people to do was to depend on him. But they're saying, since God saves, since God hears prayer, he must give water. But he doesn't, so therefore there is something wrong with me for my sin, the world because it's broken, Pharaoh because he wouldn't give us water. No, since I don't have water, there's something wrong with God. That's what's happening here. That's what the devil is trying to get Jesus to understand in the wilderness. That's what he was trying to get the people of Israel to feel. That's what he does to us all the time. Since God saves, since God hears prayer, since I've been dialing 911 for six months now and nobody's answered, there is something wrong with God. Let's do a, a hype hypothetical. Was, was God going to take the people to the promised land? Yes. Were they thirsty? Yeah. If you don't drink water, you get thirsty. Did they have to drink water to survive? No. We already know that from, from the Old Testament. Moses himself went up on Mount Horeb for 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking. Is it physically possible to survive without drinking water for 40 days? No. How did he survive 40 days without drinking water? God's awesome. God could have taken the people of Israel from Egypt to the promised land 
for 40 years and never have them drink water and they would have been fine. What's the problem? Still thirsty. So, would you just think about this. Would you be willing to walk across the desert knowing you would survive without water if you were thirsty the whole time? Was Jesus thirsty and hungry? A little bit. Was he going to die? No, it wasn't his time. He's going to die on a cross. He could have stayed out there the whole time. He could have stayed out there three years. He would have been fine. Would he have been hungry the whole time? So this is what the people of Israel, the issue was not we don't have water. The issue is what? I don't like being thirsty. If God is who he says he is, he'd understand being thirsty is irritating. And he would make it so I'm never thirsty. And Jesus says, you've missed it. You've got some spatial disorientation going on. You think your thirst is providing you helpful information about your relationship with God. It's not. How do I know I have a good relationship with God? The people of Israel should have said. I don't know. That aquarium you walked through, you called the Red Sea, where you got to see fish swimming around, and the way the chariots got, couldn't get through, and the food you're eating every day, there was a, a clear work of God to keep them alive. The issue was God's doing a work, but I'm not really totally down with how he's doing it. Is God worth trusting when I'm scared? Is, would God put me in situations where I am fearful? Back to Luke chapter 4. Jesus answered the devil, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And this is Jesus saying God can do whatever he wants. If he wants me to be thirsty, I'll be thirsty. If he wants me to be hungry, I'll be hungry. If he wants me to nail me to a cross, I will be nailed to a cross. But I'm going to test his goodness. That's, that's already been confirmed by his very nature. I don't need to test God. I'm going to look at the word. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed him until an opportune time. I love that. Do you know why? It never comes. Jesus wins. I, won't, I don't want to tell you how it ends. We're not going to get to that part of Luke for a while. I don't want to give away the end of the story. A couple of things. De the devil leaves, and Jesus has done in this wilderness what no other human in the history of the world has been able to do. Jesus does in this wilderness what no other human in the history of planet Earth has been able to do and that is to perfectly say no to temptation. Adam wasn't even hungry, and he ate food. Israel had every need they ever uh, had met miraculously every single day. What if every day you got up and your pantry had new food in it? And they still put the Lord to the test. Jesus was 100% faithful to the very end and never said yes to the devil. I don't know how to say it. This guy is awesome. That's pretty cool. I don't know if you're impressed or not. Okay, three things. We'll end with this. You ready? Instrument flight rules. What is your hunger or your desire or your fear that you're dealing with today? And if you're alive today, you've got them. I mean, right? What is it telling you? 
What is, what is your hunger? What is your appetite? What is your need for control? What is your need for resources? What is your experience of fear and stress? What is it currently telling you about your relationship with God? Or maybe a, a better way of saying it, what are you believing about your relationship with God because of those things? And one of the things we can do by leaning, leaning into what Jesus teaches us here from Deuteronomy is look at your instruments. What does the word of God tell you about your relationship with him? Jesus died to pay for your sin, and he rose from the dead to give you a kingdom that will never fail. That tells you the status of your relationship with God. He pursues you when you don't pursue him. And those other inputs are going to not provide us meaningful information about what's going on in our relationship with God. This is probably a bigger one for many of us, but it is at least for me, the concept of dialing 911. Things get really scary and stressful and worrisome. And so our assumption is since, since no one seems to be on the end of the line, what's going on with our relationship with God? We must understand what his word tells us. God's powerful presence is de defined by his promises, not our, not our perception of his responsiveness. I put too many P's and R's in that sentence. God's presence in our life is defined by his promises, not how we perceive if he's responding. And you're saying, but, but I would prefer if he responds. Well, I, so would I. Don't get me wrong. So would I. But here's the thing. I, and I know we don't like, well, it's my job to irritate you. Here we go. If God did everything you wanted, you're God. And I'll tell you, if God did everything you wanted or I wanted, I'm in the same boat, then he's not God. He's an errand boy. I don't want to worship an errand boy. I want to worship a God who knows what's up better than I do. That's what I want to do. I know that's what you want to do. So when we get in those situations of fear and we say, God's not responding the way I want, it, it's a time for repentance, even in that fear to say, okay, God, I'm a little hard-hearted here. I'm going to trust, though, what your word says. Your presence isn't defined by my fear or my perception of your responsiveness. Your presence is defined by your promises. And the Bible says, in Christ, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's a promise. When we're in scary situations and stressful situations and worrisome situations, he's there. He's with us. He never left. I might even say it this way. Even if the situation is, you are in is terrible because you did something terrible. See, that's one of the things the devil says. Well, the Lord won't be with you here because you wouldn't be in this spot if you weren't such a bonehead. Well, so nobody here's made mistakes. Apparently, I'm just talking to myself here. So I blow it. All of a sudden, my world is falling apart. Well, God can't be with me here because it's my sin that got me here. No, he is with me because of his promises, not because I'm good enough. Even when you're in the mess because you blew it, he is with you. If not, the cross wasn't as cool as we think it is. Finally, this. Quick question. Just don't answer out loud or answer for the person next, sitting next to you. In the wilderness of your own life, how good are you at doing what Jesus did? Rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10. 
how good are you at doing what Jesus did in the wilderness? If your score is higher than a one, ask your spouse. Are you really bad at it? This is what's great. When Jesus was on the cross, we recognized he was our substitute for our sin, right? When Jesus was living his life perfectly, he was substitute for our lousy life. So when we read about him saying no to sin in the wilderness, we can say, he's my substitute for that too. I want to worship him with holiness, and I know you want to worship him with holiness, but I don't have to be holy to impress him. He was impressive enough for us. We trust Jesus for his death. We trust Jesus for his resurrection. And we trust that his life was also good enough to be a substitute for our not so good at saying no to sin life. Jesus steps in for you. It's time as Christians to drop, carrying, drop that shame and say he did it for me. I'm good. I do have a relationship with the Father. And it doesn't matter how I feel about it. I look at my instruments. Jesus said, by his life, death, and resurrection, I can walk boldly into the throne room of grace and the Father receives me. That's what the Bible tells me. Not how I feel about it, not what the devil tells me about it. That's what my Bible says. Is God worth trusting? Yes, he is because I'm hungry. And is God worth trusting? Yes, because I'm scared. He's worth trusting. Will you join me as we pray? God, we thank you for the kindness you have shown us in Christ. Not merely an example, he is that Lord, but more than that, he's our substitute. God, many of us look at our relationship with you and we evaluate it with all of the wrong inputs. We look at our circumstances and we think about how we feel. We evaluate how good we are at being religious. And at the end of the day, Lord, we need to look at what your word says. And what your word says is that when we trust Jesus, he gives us his righteousness. When we trust Jesus, he gives us his perfection. And when we trust Jesus, he gives us relationship with the Father. God, I pray in this moment you would open our eyes to the greatness of our Savior Jesus, who walked through the wilderness and never once failed. God, there are many here who are discouraged in their life with with you because of hunger and because of stress and because of fear and because of things that aren't going the right way. I just pray, God, you would give us the strength in this moment to rest in the work of Christ. Challenge our hard hearts, Lord, which in rebellion, we want, we want you and everything to be hunky-dory. God, I pray for those who are here who don't know you. I would pray in this moment, God, they would recognize their need for forgiveness and they would trust you for salvation. We thank you for Jesus, Lord, and we can't wait till you come and we pray until that day you would give us strength to endure to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up as we close with a song?